Everyone get a handout as you came in. If you weren't with us last week, these will be your lifesaver because this will save you tons of note-taking. We're going to fly through a lot of scriptures and a lot of thoughts, and so hopefully this will help you with that. So make sure you get a handout there on the music stands in the back as well as a pen to help you fill in some blanks and get some notes on that. Now, before we jump into this week's study, I got asked a great question last week, and I thought I need to answer it for everyone. And the question last week was, what book are you using for this study? Because other people like, we want to follow along. And the question is, there's not just one book I am using for this study. So this is not, this is a study we made ourselves that's not coming from any one book. Now, if you want to read more on this, because I know we're scratching the surface and there's a lot to cover in this. Here's the books that we're pulling from in this study, and you will see them quoted throughout. So I'm trying to give you quotes from a lot of different authors, but you'll see tonight particularly A.W. Tozer's The Attributes of God. It's a two-volume set. We do not have this one in the Resource Center, but it's a great one. There's one from Rosemary Jensen called Praying the Attributes of God. It does not have much teaching in it, but it lists each attribute of God and things you can pray, scriptures you can pray back to the Lord about who He is. One I probably draw from the most, you saw him quote a lot last week, was A.W. Pink's The Attributes of God. That one is in the Resource Center, as is Rosemary Jensen's Praying the Attributes of God. Those are both in the Resource Center. Um, there's one called God Is, Mark Jones. You'll see him quoted tonight as well. It's a fantastic, it's one of my favorites. That and A.W. Pink's are probably my two favorites of the attributes of God. And then you'll see it quoted again tonight, not in the Resource Center, but it's The Doctrine of God, Herman Bavink. Great, great older work. And then, of course, one of my favorite of all books, besides the Bible, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. So he's got several chapters on the attributes of God. It is a great go-to one. You can do your curls with it when you're tired of reading it. So it's a great, it's a great resource to have. But, so to answer the question, what book are we following? We're not following one. We're following a lot. Because different authors list different attributes of God. There's so much to who God is. And so some books will include some attributes. The others do not. They'll name them different things. So it's not like they follow just one order of it. And so we pull from a lot of different ones. You get a lot more just truth and a bigger picture of who God is. And so, again, about half of those are in the Resource Center. The others you can find online if you're curious about those. Now, before we jump into the attributes we're talking about tonight, I want to just share Colossians 1, 9, and 10. You see it on the front page here. Just to keep before us what we desire to happen as we study together. Colossians 1. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Friends, we study the attributes of God because we want to increase in the knowledge of God. We want to see God as he's revealed himself to be. But this is not just, as we said before, an academic pursuit. We want to know who God is so we can know God, so we can have a relationship with him. I love what A.W. Tozer says there. You see it at the bottom of the front page there. He says, an unknown God can either be trusted, served, or worshipped. So if we do not know who God is, we can't serve him, we can't trust him, we can't worship him unless we know him for who he's revealed himself to be. So that's our goal, our desire, our prayer in this study is that we would know who God is so we can trust him, serve him, and worship him. So turn the page. Let's jump into tonight's attributes. But first of all, a quick review. What is an attribute of God? Now, we defined this more last week, but this is from a guy named W.T. Connor. It's a definition from the 1930s I found helpful. He says, an attribute of God are the qualities or characteristics of the divine being by virtue of which he is distinguished from all created beings and without which he would not be worthy of the worship and the service of man. And so these are the attributes, the characteristics that describe God's very being. They're not peripheral to him. They're who he is. 
and they're things that set him apart from the rest of creation, set him apart from us. And because of these things, he is worthy of worship and worthy of being served. So that's the definition that kind of guides us through the study. Last week, we began with the unity of God. If you remember from last week, the unity of God means God is not divided into parts. God is fully all the attributes all the time. So it's not that God is a God of love at this period, then a God of wrath in this period. God is always fully all the attributes all of the time. So we started there last week with his unity. Tonight we're going to do two, and we're doing two together tonight because they're so closely linked. In fact, in some of these books, you'll see God's independence listed, but not his eternality. In others of these books, you'll see his eternality listed, but not his independence. And some of the books won't list either. They'll group it under a different heading. But these are closely linked in who God is, so I'm going to treat them together. Now, these are going to sound familiar if you were with us on Sunday, because these are also some of those attributes we saw in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, this past Sunday. So, we'll be a little review on a few of the points of it if you were with us on Sunday. So, first of all, let's start with the independence of God. Now, this is what we call an incommunicable attribute. So, quick review for those who were here last week. What is an incommunicable attribute? You want to take a stab at it? Do you remember what it is? What's that? Something that God has that we do not have. Yeah. You can add anything to that? Something that we, that we can talk about. Yeah, something we talk about that we really have trouble understanding because it's so different than us. The incommunicable attributes of God are God's attributes that he does not share with us. Now, the other group we'll get to later in the semester are the communicable attributes. Those are the attributes God shares with us, but shares with us in part. God is love. We can love, but we will never love like God loves. That's a communicable attribute. But tonight, we're talking about two incommunicable attributes, two attributes unique to God that we do not experience in his creation. And the first one is called the independence of God. Now, it goes by different terms. Sometimes it's called his self-existence. Sometimes it's called his self-sufficiency. Sometimes it's called his solitariness, which my mind doesn't really get that one because that sounds like you're all alone and bored and that's not what it means to communicate. And then the other word that's used for it is not a word we use in everyday conversation, God's aseity. I'm sure that's what you talked about over the coffee pot at work this week, right? The aseity of God. It's a Latin word that simply means that God derives his existence from himself. That God doesn't need anything else for his existence. He derives his being completely from himself. Now we saw on Sunday in talking about this, this is so opposite of our experience. There's nothing that we have that can experience this type of independence where you do not need anything. So this is very incommunicable. And because it's so different, people struggle to define it. Here's four attempts at defining the independence of God. First is A.W. Tozer. Normally I like Tozer. Normally I can understand Tozer. I have no clue what he's talking about here. God is self-existent selfhood. Now that just gets way more philosophical than my brain can operate and work, that God is self-existent selfhood. But that's Tozer's attempt to try to define the independence of God. Herman Bavink. He says, God is whatever he is by his own self of, or of his own self. So he is whoever he is by his own self and of his own self. So try and say the same thing. So I, I resonate more with innovation and early church father. He simply says, God's independence is God has no origin. I'm like, okay, my mind can get around that, that God has no origin. But I think my favorite definition for it is what Wayne Grudem said. This comes from a systematic theology. He says, God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything Yet we in the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. So you see that definition on your handout there? Uh, I think it's one of the best definitions for the independence of God. It brings a balance that most definitions lack. Independence, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything, but he has a relationship with us. And we glorify him and he can give us great joy. So I love how the nearness of God and the greatness of God come together and how Grudem 
describes it. So to pull that together, what is the independence of God? You see it there in the middle of, of that second page. God does not need any part of creation, including us, in order to exist or for any other reason. Now that's that corrective we've talked about before. God doesn't need us for joy. God doesn't need us for purpose. God doesn't need us for contentment. God doesn't need us to feel love. God doesn't need us for anything. So God was not lonely. That's not why he made us. God wasn't lacking joy. That's not why he made us. God needs nothing from us or anything else. As it says there, God has an independent, unsupported existence. Again, that's so the opposite of us. We are so dependent and we need support, right? You look at a human baby, talk about dependency and need. But even for us as adults, we still have dependency and need. We need community. Think about what happens in your own heart if you're isolated from other people. We were made for community. We're made for relationship. We need support from other people. We need support from the Lord. If we don't have support, we are in trouble, but not God. He is independent. He has an unsupported existence. Now, where do we see the independence of God in Scripture? Now, you see there on page 2 a number of Scriptures. We saw the first one Sunday, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We talked about it Sunday that God was already there in the beginning. There was nothing that he needed. Job 41.11. This is fascinating because the context of Job 41 here is a discussion of a creature called Leviathan. This massive creature of old of the deeps. And God is telling Job, you can't capture, you can't get around a Leviathan here. And if you can't lay hold of that creature, how much more can you lay hold of me? And so this is the context of Job 41, 11. Who has first given to me? This is God talking that I should repay him. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God is independent. He needs absolutely nothing from anyone else. We cannot give back to God anything that did not come from him. So that means, friends, our money... If we give it back to God, it's only because he's already given it to us. Our time, our health, our lives, everything we have has come from him. We're completely dependent upon him. So we have nothing we can give to him that he has not first given to us. You see the same thing here in Psalm 50. It says here, this is God, God rebuking his people for thinking that he needed stuff from them. He says, hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. Do you hear the mine, mine, my all throughout this? Everything belongs to the Lord. There's not a square inch in all of creation that, doesn't, that God does not declare mine over. That includes me, you, everything, it all belongs to the Creator. You see it in Isaiah 40 here. Notice the questions here in Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor is the beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Did you see all those questions in there? Like, who has taught the Lord? Whom did he consult? Who has given him wisdom? And the answer is obvious. No one, no one has taught the Lord anything. He's independent. He needs nothing. You see this truth throughout the New Testament as well. There's many places, but two that we've highlighted right here. Acts 17, 24 to 28. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Why? Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. What Acts 17 shows us is that God does not need us, but we desperately need God. I see something similar in Romans 11 here. It's actually, you see it in quotes here because it's pointing back to Isaiah 40 that we read a minute ago. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? As who has ever given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. And friends, that means again for us that everything we have comes from God, including, friends, don't miss this, the knowledge of him. That for us to even know who God is, he had to reveal himself to us. We are that dependent on him. We would not have life without him. We would not know who he is without him. We would not have breath today without him. Everything we have is dependent upon him. But notice the common theme in all these texts there. What does God need from us? Nothing. God needs absolutely nothing from us. Because he's independent. And as we saw Sunday, his independence is eternality or link. The eternal one needs nothing from any of us. I want you to see what A.W. Pink says. This is again one of those books I mentioned. This in the Resource Center. And notice how these two attributes bridge together. This makes my mind hurt, which is good for us. There was a time, if time it could be called, when God in the unity of his nature, the subsisting equally in three divine persons, dwelt all alone. So just stop right there and get your mind around that. There was a time, if time could be called, because this is before time, right? When God in the unity of his nature, he's one God, He dwelt all alone. In the beginning, God. There was no heaven where his glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage his attention. There were no angels to him his praise. No universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one but God. And that not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting. During a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of how much? Nothing. So God needs absolutely nothing. He never has and he never will. So that's God is independent, which ties in here with the fact that God is also eternal. Again, that's why some of the authors only list one or the other, because these two attributes are so intertwined. So what do we mean by the eternality of God here? Well, the first thing I want you to realize is what the word eternal itself means in general. Eternity means lasting forever, always existing having no beginning or end, or being ceaseless. Those are all words you can use to, to describe being eternal. Now, when we try to apply that to God, here's how two different people have attempted to define God's eternalness, his eternality. First, Wayne Grudem. God has no beginning, end, or succession of moments in his own being. And he sees all time equally vividly, yet God sees and acts in time. Now, we're going to unpack that in a minute and talk more about that. But God, no beginning, no end, but no succession of moments... He sees everything vividly, yet he works in the time that he created. I love this one from Danny Aiken. Danny Aiken is the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. He says this, Eternity is not simply the negation of time with reference to God, but catch this, but the arena of his full, majestic, unimaginably rich, and overflowing life is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I love that word arena. So think if you've been to an arena. Think about the largest arena you've been to. 
For me, it's going 45 minutes up the road occasionally in the fall with my boys and hanging out with 86,000 people in an arena to try to capture the wonder of what's happening there or the demise of what's happening there, whichever way you want to see it. But there's a big arena to try to capture what is happening there. What arena can show God's greatness? What arena can show the magnificence of who he is? And the only arena can do that is eternity. The biggest thing we can possibly comprehend is what is needed to try to show who God is. So, what, so the key to realize for us is however you want to define God's eternality, God's relationship to time is very, very different than ours. We have a beginning, we have an end. Everything we know has beginnings and end. Our whole life is a succession of moments, but not God. God is eternal. Now let's unpack some of what that means that God is eternal. Number one here, that means God has no beginning or no end. God never began to be. God just always was. God did not start somewhere. God just always existed, and we see that throughout the Bible. Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you've formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Now, one quick thing to notice here. You could translate this verse different. This word everlasting can be translated from vanishing point to vanishing point. And for me, that helps me capture more, I think, what the psalmist was trying to get at there. From vanishing point to vanishing point, you are God. And when we were on our trip out west back this summer, there are times the road would just be so flat and going on and on, there'd be a vanishing point where you couldn't see any more. But then you drive an hour later and you finally realize you hit that vanishing point, and there's still another vanishing point. It just keeps going and going and going with the vastness of the plains out west. But if you try to look back in eternity to the vanishing point you can see and then keep going past that vanishing point, from vanishing point to vanishing point, there is God. And that just helps me catch the image of this. There's no beginning and no end. Now, turn the page. Several more scriptures there. Psalm 104. Take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. Now notice this. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So of all, before the world was made, God's years had no end. From vanishing point to vanishing point, he is God. It was like I've said before, these attributes are not just philosophical things to talk about in a coffee shop. These have real life application for us. And here it is right here. The children of your servants will dwell secure. How do we dwell secure? Because us who are so needy are being held by the one who needs nothing, who is eternal. And so God's eternality becomes a place of hope for us. Isaiah 40, 28, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. John 1, we saw this Sunday morning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is talking about Jesus. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, that everything we have has come from God. He has always been there. He is eternal. John chapter 8, these incredible words that Jesus said when the Jews asked him, you are not 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to, you, to them, truly, truly, I say to you, notice the tenses here, before Abraham was, I am. Yeah, before Abraham was, before Abraham ever existed, not just I was, but I am. Remember, he's outside of time, though he entered time. He is outside of time as the eternal God. And so before Abraham was, I am. And then Revelation chapter 1, I am the Alpha and the Omega, which are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. I am the 
almighty. And so he's showing us that he's over all history because he is eternal. Now, I love what Tozer said here about it. He said, man looks back as far as he can see, back to that vanishing point, then turns around and looks forward as far as he can until human thought falls exhausted and human eyes can no longer see. If we try to look far back as we can to that vanishing point and as far forward as we can to that vanishing point, we get exhausted because there's no point that we'll get to where there's not God either direction. So God has no beginning and no end. Number two, we mentioned this Sunday, time began at creation. Before God made the universe, there was no time. Now, friends, this makes my brain hurt because everything in my life, everything in your life is second succession of moments. We're living in time. God is outside of time. Time is something that he created. Again, to quote Tozer, he says, but before the beginning, there wasn't any beginning. There wasn't any before. Our human words fall so short to try to explain this because there was a time when there was no time. There was a period before time when there was really no before because there was no succession of moments. Notice Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. Now, the everything we normally think of are like the dolphins and the lions and the people and the plants and the trees, but everything includes gravity, matter, all the laws of thermodynamics, the laws of motion, all of those things, physics, chemistry, and yes, time is included in that everything. There was a time when there was no time. Time was made at creation. So as one author said, God created the world with time, not in time. So if you're having trouble going to sleep tonight, you can ponder that one as you're laying in bed. God created the world with time. He made the world with time existing. But he did not create the world in time. God is outside of it when he made it. So that leads to number three, God is outside of time. So the first question with that, how do you define time? So where we saw time, how in the world do you define time? Anyone want to take a stab at that? What is time? Succession of moments. That's exactly right. Time is a succession of moments. This is something we talk, you know, we think about time, but how do we define it? We experience time. We live in our whole world is immersed in time. Our whole life is immersed in time. And yet it's so hard to define. Yeah, it is a succession of moments. So for God in his being, there is no succession of moments. So let that hurt your brain for a little bit. Everything in our life is this happens and this happens and this happens. And so I can't tell you what's going to happen in five minutes because I can't see ahead. And if you ask me what I preached on on July 3rd of 2020, I probably have absolutely no idea because my memory's faded from that. Or if you ask me what I ate for dinner three nights ago, I probably can't even tell you that either because that's already gotten blurry and faded. But for God, God is outside of time. He is no succession of moments. Tozer says it this way. Again, let your brain hurt on this. God has no past. Now, I want you to hear that. And I want you to shake your head hard here because this is an idea that the old church fathers knew but that we, their children, don't seem to care much about. God has no past. You have a past. It isn't really very long, although you may wish it wasn't so long. But God has no past and no future. Why doesn't God have a past or a future? Because past and future are creature words. And they have to do with time. They have to do with the flowing motion of time. But God is not riding on the bosom of time. Time is a little mark across the bosom of eternity, and God sits above time, dwelling in eternity from everlasting to everlasting, from vanishing point to vanishing point. Thou art God. God is so different than us. This is an incommunicable part of his nature. He is outside of time. And because that number four, turn the page to page five, that means <coughs> that God sees all time equally vividly. Now, again, if I ask you, what did you eat for dinner on August 14th? 
have to stop and think and may remember, may not. If, if I ask you, what are you going to be doing on September 14th this year? None of us can tell you because none of us knows the future. We do not see all time equally vividly. We only see time vividly now and maybe what just happened. But memories of the past fade. We have no idea of the future, but that is not God's experience. Mark Jones, that book God Is that I mentioned is in the Resource Center. He says this, God comprehends all things at once. He does not increase in knowledge and wisdom. He sees all things that have ever been or shall ever be at once, which we may, which we may call an eternal present. So that means God is seeing now what happened 5,000 years ago, and God is seeing now what is still going to happen 100 years from now. He sees it all vividly because he's not bound by time like we are. You see this in different places in Scripture. Psalm 94, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Now, a thousand years is figurative imagery. It doesn't mean that a thousand years in day one, God starts forgetting things, okay? This is just a picture for us of this huge block of time and saying God sees it all equally. Second Peter 3, 8 builds on that. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. We see in Isaiah 46, this is about when God has said he's going to use Cyrus to deliver God's people from captivity. Here's what he says. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God can declare what's going to happen and he knows it will happen because he's outside of time. There's no guesswork with God. There's a lot of bad teaching today of things called process theology that God is in process and God is learning and God is doing the best he can and that is just not the counsel of scripture. God is not in process. God is not learning. God sees everything equally vividly all the time. That means for God, and this again makes my brain hurt, a day never ends to God. He always experiences it. That means 3,000 years ago, he already heard the praises you're singing this upcoming Sunday. That means 20 years from now, he will still be hearing the praise, prayers you prayed today because he sees all time equally vividly. And yet he's so different than that, than our experience. But yet number five, yet God chooses to act in time. God is the Lord over time. He's sovereign over time. He made it so he uses it for his purposes here. Herman Bavink says this, He never becomes subject to time, measure, or number. He remains eternal and inhabits eternity. But he uses time as a means for the manifestation of his eternal thoughts and excellences. He makes time subservient to eternity and thereby proves himself to be the king of the ages. So time for us is so limiting, right? We're always running out of time. We're always feeling stretched and we're always feeling stressed because there's not enough time to do everything not God. Time is not something that limits him. Time is something he made and he acts in it to accomplish his sovereign purpose for the times he chooses. So you see like in Acts 1-7, Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That means God has set aside a time that Christ will return. God is outside of time, but he chooses to act in time and he's already in his sovereign plan from before creation appointed the time that Christ will return. Or Galatians 4, when you Look back to when Christ first came. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Notice that phrase, when the fullness of time had come. God was not bound by time, but he created time and he used time and knew the right time for Christ to come. 
So this is incommunicable. And we see that with number six here. You and I will always exist in time. When we die, friends, our succession of moments does not stop. We enter eternity, not now outside of time, but still in time. There's there's a reason there's no verse there. It's because there's no verse in Scripture that indicates that we ourselves will transcend time the way God does. Eternity for us is not timeless. It's rather an unending succession of moments in God's presence. So we will always be living in time in the presence of the one who is outside of time. And so eternity for us is no end, but we're still bound by time. Okay, so turn the page to page six here. What are the implications of these attributes? These are, we think about God's independence, he needs nothing, God's eternality, he's outside of time. What does this teach us about ourselves and about others and about God himself? I want to give you just a few here as we think through what this means. Number one, I've referenced it several times recently, but number one, God did not make people because he was lonely or needed anything. Like we saw that quote earlier, God for all eternity existed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in perfect communion, in perfect harmony, and in perfect love, and perfect fellowship. Just the God had nothing else. There was not space. There was not matter. There was nothing else. It was just God and nothing else. He needs nothing. That means he does not need our service. He doesn't even need our worship. He doesn't need anything. Yet he delights in us. We'll see in a minute. So we do get to have a relationship with him, but he needs nothing. Number two, everything other than God, including time, was created by God. Thus he owns everything. So you see there in Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The earth is the Lord's. Everything within it belongs to him. That means, friends, everything we own comes from God. Like we like to talk about my house, my car, my phone, my books, my water bottle. We stick mile in front of a lot of things, don't we? But the truth of scripture is They're gods. Everything has come from him. We have nothing. We don't have my body, my life, my health. This all belongs to God. That means, the expression I use a lot, my time is not even really correct because it's not my time. Time is a creation. I'm a creation. You're a creation. So when we are living in time, the time that we have ultimately belongs to God. That means that we are stewards of what God has given us. And we think of stewards, we normally think of money. We think of stewardship campaigns. But stewardship is we're stewards of our time. We're stewards of our possessions. We're stewards of anything we have, even our own health, because it all belongs to God. Now, that's a whole series for a whole other time. But don't miss the fact that stewardship is a huge implication of these attributes. Everything belongs to God. Therefore, we are merely stewards. That means when we give back to God, we're only giving him what he's already given to us. So if we give back our time to God and we spend time with him in personal worship, family worship, corporate worship, and we give to the Lord our time and service to other people, we give our money to help other people, we're only giving what God has first given to us. We cannot bless God with anything that he has not already given to us. So God owns everything, therefore we're stewards. Number three, for us to want to be independent like God is sin. For us to want to be independent is sin. That God's independence is incommunicable. His eternality is incommunicable. For God to be independent is good, For us to want to be independent is pride because we do not want help from others. Isaiah 14 here. Now, depending on who you listen to, some people say this is the king of Babylon. Some people say this is the image of Satan's fall. I think it's actually both. I think it was a historical event that had a prophetic meaning to it. So I believe it's both historical and what's describing Satan's fall from heaven as well. But Isaiah 14, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. 
how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the, moment, on the mount of assembly in the far reach of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most.